Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, joining us today for a very special program to review the big stories of 2023 that will shape the coming year are the award-winning hosts of our Defense and Aerospace Report weekly podcasts, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello of Cavus Ships, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, Laura Winter of The Downlink, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and J.J. Gertler, who joins me as the co-host of our Air Power podcast. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, for uh, joining me. Uh, it's absolutely tremendous having you all uh, on the team, and thanks for doing such a terrific job. Chris and Chris and Laura, congratulations again uh, on being recognized by the Defense Media Awards in your uh, naval category as well as space category uh, for the extraordinary work you guys are doing uh, every single week. Uh, and we really appreciate it very much. And before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor, from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn more about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. Uh, Chris uh, Cervello, why don't you uh, start us off first, you know, with sort of the big, uh, you know, aside from this, uh, you are uh, integral to the uh, our ability to produce and to get these programs up and out, as well as on the uh, editorial content and direction that you help us with. What were, from your standpoint, sort of the big cross-cutting national security stories that glanced off of each and every single one of our beats, do you think, over the course of last year? I want to talk themes as those stories go. And if I was to say that there's one big theme um, across DOD and the services, it's the idea that they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, or this idea, um, I want to do this, but I have to do that. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, one, they're helping to fight two wars while trying to avoid and prepare for the next world war. Um, and those efforts have not always been in sync or complementary, as we've uh, heard from uh, both DOD and service leadership. Um, throughout the year, they're trying to transform how they fight and the technology used to fight the next conflict while at the same time having to produce legacy weapons faster to meet the challenges of those two wars. Um, and sometimes that you know has caused problems with industry as uh, the, the tension between wanting to do new but still produce old has actually grown the valley of death uh, that DOD and the services have said that they, they want to shrink. Um, and it's really hampered, I think, new ideas from being realized quickly. And then finally, um, on the people front, um, you know, across DOD, there's been this recognition that leadership wants to change the look and the thinking um, of the services and of the, the Pentagon workforce. Right. Um, that means bringing in uh, and cultivating new talent among uniform and civilian rank and file. But the problem is, is that they're uh, because of recruiting challenges, because of workforce challenges, they've been forced to go back and draw on traditional recruiting areas. Some people call it the Southern smile, essentially from California down right. through Texas and into Florida, both to grab uh, uniform folks uh, and civilian folks um, to meet the bare minimum recruiting goals. Um, and, you know, keeping with that caught between a rock and a hard place, DOD and the services have been both criticized for being woke and in some cases not woke enough. Right. Um, so you, you really have this kind of weird tension of having to do the status quo while trying to change. And they've had to deal with, you know, while doing that, they've had to deal with an increasingly unproductive Congress. Michael Herson and Dove uh, show earlier this week talked about that. Um, you, you know, it's taken forever to, to get the NDAA done. We still don't have a spending bill. 
Um, they're, they're having to deal with a disinterested and fickle American electorate. Uh, we're going to see that as 24 uh, rolls in. Um, and then finally, you have an industry right now that wants to help, um, but all indicators are that they're growing increasingly impatient um, and that, you know, as they bring dual use technology, um, you know, they want it to be realized now. Um, and right. as DOD fights between the now and the then, um, we're starting to lose some of those industry partners. So it's been a complicated year across DOD and the services. Tensions are high because, you know, we're trying to spin capability out more quickly. Uh, that's not happening necessarily as quickly as we would like it to be. We, we don't have enough people. Uh, that includes whether uh, they're in uniform, but certainly in industry, there are supply chain backups, right? Just about everything is taking 36 months to execute, which is a, a lot of frustration, in part because a lot of uh, the stuff that we're tr tr trying to make was never designed really to be uh, mass produced, or at least mass produced at the speed and the scale that we'd like to uh, get them. Uh, too. And it's it's funny, you talk about the Southern smile. I, I remember when you were working with uh, working for Bill Moran, when he was chief of naval personnel, we were we were talking about some of these challenges a long time ago about how to broaden uh, Navy uh, recruiting and those recruiting challenges uh, have have still been uh, uh, per, pretty uh, profound. Um, JJ, let me uh, go to you because it's a good segue uh, also to uh, get to space. Um, you know, you and I, uh, we launched the program in, in January and it's been a terrific ride uh, since then. What are some of the big air power stories that uh, uh, jumped out at, at, at you over the course of the, uh, of the year? Obviously, one of the big ones was Secretary Kendall announcing the big reorganization that's going to be unveiled in uh, February in, in Denver uh, at the Air Warfare Symposium. Uh, but what are some of the other storylines you saw emerge over the last year that you thought were, uh, were most significant? Well, Vago, one of them was illustrated by the uh, most significant aircraft story of the year, which was the first flight of the B-21 Raider. What that started to show us is the emergence of two very distinct thoughts about what 21st century air power means. There are two realities out there that are developing, and they can actually exist at the same time. One is the high-end vision that the B-21 next-generation air dominance the collaborative combat aircraft and all the links that tie them together signify. They're expensive, they're complicated, they're also highly effective in a variety of environments. The other, however, is a completely different vision and we see it exemplified by Ukraine. It's that 21st century air power is distributed, very small uh, platforms operated by a number of individuals and, but collaborating together to create effect. We see that mostly in the drone wars between uh, Ukraine and Russia. But Hamas went to school on that and on October 7th used 21st century air power the way it has developed in Ukraine to shock Israel and frankly provoke Israel into a 20th century air power response where we're starting to see, again, some of the limitations of air power when it's used against insurgencies. Then uh, Secretary Kendall uh, on the program reminded of uh, that bridge of advanced and existing capability, right? That he said that everybody thinks about CCA uh, and NGAD, but they should bear in mind that actually the collaborative combat aircraft, this idea of, of distributed long range 
um, air power, unmanned air power, uh, is also going to be governed from F-16s and F-15s and other platforms. The whole idea is to get that air power forward, whether in a counter air strike, reconnaissance, uh, you know, electronic warfare, each one of the guises. Uh, and so I, I think it's it's a, kind of a particularly interesting um, um, task they have of knitting together the existing uh, with with the future. And nothing screams future more uh, than uh, the uh, United States Space Force and all the things, amazing things that are going on uh, in space. Laura, you've been doing uh, some uh, really terrific work uh, in, in looking at a whole and, and novel angles to interesting space stories, right? Walk us through from your eye, what are the things that jumped out at you over the course of, uh, of this year, uh, both in the little and the big stories that you think are going to be shaping space uh, and your space coverage in 2024? I'm going to approach that question with first what I think is really the biggest space story, and then after that, uh, what are the two major themes for the United States Space Force? But even before I do that, we do have to celebrate that today the Space Force is four years old. So happy birthday, Space Force. Um, the biggest story, though, isn't particular to the U.S. Space Force, but it is particular to space and space's effect on warfare. Because this year, it really proved out that you do not have to be a space power. You don't have to be Russia or the United States or China right. to use space-based assets with actual strategic effects. And everyone is aware. Now, this story really kind of came about you know, earlier this year in January, February, March. But the thing is, it's carrying on and it is shaping how plans are being made. It's shaping how space powers are looking at space assets and, and, and looking at, you know, who they're going to actually target. So China has said, yes, they're going to target commercial space operators that provide space assets or space services to those who buy them, whether they be the United States, a space power or Ukraine or Taiwan or who, whoever. So that's kind of changed the sort of environment a bit. Now, on the themes, though, that I think are really sort of important when we're looking at the Space Force, again, four years old today, the two main themes for this year have been words and reorganization. And when I'm talking about words, these things are, are long-lasting developments. And the first one is the mission statement. You know, we finally got a mission statement is to secure our nation's interests in, from, and to space. And it the, really the best part about that it is that doesn't place a limit on where in space. It can be in low Earth orbit, cislunar, or the solar system. And while you all may chuckle about the solar system, this year, one of China's major policy developments was their vision of a Chinese logistics highway from research-rich asteroids to on-orbit factories. So it's kind of good that the Space Force has the latitude to think broadly um, when and if that time ever does come. Other words that have come uh, have been the chief of space operations theory of success, you know, there are three core tenants. Those tenants are don't get surprised, you know, deny first mover advantage, prepare to achieve space superiority. But then we've also had a lot of doctrine. And that's really important for any branch of the military. And this year we got two new pieces of doctrine. We have a doctrine on intelligence and operations. And then we have a 
bit of a minor doctrine piece that's on space domain awareness. So that's that's it on the words. And on the reorganization, there are three, excuse me, there are nine new units that are performing duties related to electronic warfare and missile warning and intelligence and cyber and command control. And then there's some really interesting sort of tryouts of organization that have to do with deltas, integrated mission deltas. And then there's going to be a space systems um, delta that's supposed to work very closely with these integrated mission deltas. And instead of being focused on a function, they're more focused on missions. So that's sort of stuff that needs to shake out um, and see how those things are going to work. If they do work, then I see the Space Force doing a massive reorganization that's that's you know centered around mission sets as opposed to functions. And those are those are I'd say the really you know big 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 muscle movements that um, I've seen. Um, if you want to do a contrast you know, to our pacing challenge, as Secretary Kendall likes to say, is China, China, China. China's year has been not, you know, words or reorganizations, but it's been about show. They're showing us what they can do. They have right. shown us that they can move satellites into different orbits. They've just sent us another space plane and released six small satellites in the past few days. Um, so this is their year of showing us what they're actually capable of. And on that, I'd say we're kind of behind, to be honest. Um, and and again, right, I mean, that's one of the things that's driving Secretary Kendall. I mean, I think it's incredible uh, to announce this kind of organization and the effort starting in September, just, uh, you know, at AFA or just before AFA, uh, when JJ and I had an opportunity uh, to speak with them, and then uh, to be able to roll something out in five months. And anybody who's covered and known the Air Force understands that there's a lot that's been standing in the way of moving faster. Uh, and, and one of the things is, you know, requirements and whether or not we need to reconstitute and under whatever label, you know, integrated uh, programs or integrated warfighting or integrated capabilities the Air Force Systems Center that used to be the focal point of requirements in order to be able to generate capability and, and a whole bunch of other smaller uh, things where, you know, there are, um, you know, as as uh, as as numerous uh, Air Force commanders have told me over the years, you know, it, it, there are a whole bunch of people who have an ability to say no to you and all of these other different pieces and then actually unifying it in a way where stuff goes up, gets fed in gets processed, becomes something, and then delivers an output with a lot fewer people who can say no, um, I, I think ultimately would be good, whether it's delivering space power, whether it's delivering air power. I mean, one of the things the Chinese do really, really well is almost everything they do, they're able to do at scale, right? So they don't just do electronic warfare, they do electronic warfare at scale. And right, the upgrades they're making to their nuclear facilities, even as we record this, uh, New York Times has been reporting that, you know, that that makes you a little bit concerned, right? They're in the midst of a nuclear modernization. Why are they putting this uh, investment in Lop-Nor? Uh, well, could it be because they're actually going to restart nuclear tests, for example, uh, before they field a new generation, uh, a new generation of capability? I mean, it, it's really um, fascinating and, and certainly rooting for our side to get out of their own way uh, and, and be able to field capabilities more quickly. Um, 
thanks very much uh, on that, Lauren. I'm going to come back to everybody in, in just a moment. Chris, uh, U.S. Navy has been making the case that it's a time for sea power. Uh, we have a naval task force uh, that's been put together to try to alleviate the burden on USS Kearney that's been doing an unbelievable job uh, shooting down Houthi drones that are uh, have both struck shipping and, and uh, you know, in a, in a strategic waterway through which 9% of the world's energy flow uh, passes on a daily uh, basis. Um you know, this ship has been shooting down some of these long range drones with multi-million dollar standard missiles. I think they're using standard missile twos, um, you know, but more broadly over the course of the year. What are what are the, the most impactful and meaningful uh, stories and events? And Chris, I want to get your take on this as well in a moment that you've seen, uh, whether on the, uh, the Navy side or whether it's on the Marine Corps side of the house. Before I do anything, so the Carney actually. Uh, sources are telling us that the the Carney has definitely been shooting SM2 missiles at missiles, but a lot of the UAV engagements are being done with a five inch gun, uh, which is very good to hear because a um, an SM2 against most UAVs is a very poor rate of exchange. It's using a golden bullet to right. shoot down a pretty cheap target, and that's uh, probably not what you want to do. A lot of people are worried that that's a tactic that's being deployed here uh, by the other side. In an effort to sort of bleed us out um, because those are expensive missiles and they are not easy to replace. And they, a UAV, just about any AV that the other guys are using is pretty darn cheap and far more expendable. Um, but I, I think the, the, five, the five inch gun is, is, is proving quite effective, which is good to hear. Um, uh, it is uh, go, go five inch 54, uh, right. you know, so good really old awesome gun. to hear. Good old gunfire with some, with some uh, new munitions is, uh, is is apparently being pretty effective. Um, you know, I mean, the big the big theme really is is what we're seeing right now, from a naval point of view. This year is has, has been a a crescendo. Uh, right now, um, we've never seen, um, rarely seen naval displays like we have the last month or two. Uh, there was a point in November where uh, it was hard to miss. Uh, the U.S. Navy brought together two aircraft carriers in the uh, Mediterranean. The, the Dwight D. Eisenhower was 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 new; was had just deployed. The Gerald R. Ford had been on deployment; was actually the Ike was scheduled to relieve them, but uh, as we all know, that didn't happen. The Ford has been was held over and is con and continues to be held over. But they operated together for several days. Lots of photo ops there. Um, just days later, on the other side of the world, in the Western Pacific. Uh, another two-carrier photo op was was uh, going on with the USS Ronald Reagan, which had been on her uh, fall deployment, uh, met by the newly deployed Carl Vinson. They operated together in the Western Pacific. The fact that you could do not that once, not just once, but twice within days of each other on opposite sides of the world is a very profound statement. What was even more interesting was that at that same time, Four other carriers, stateside, non-deployed, were out and actually running, actually operating. That is incredibly rare. Carriers uh, spend a lot of time in maintenance. All ships spend some good good deal of time in maintenance. And just a couple of years ago, it was sort of the other way around. There were only like three carriers running for a while. Well, all of a sudden, you had eight aircraft carriers underway at the same time. That's almost unprecedented. With the, it's an eleven uh, ship force, seventy three percent of the fleet uh, of the force underway at the same time is almost unheard of. 
uh, right now, actually, the uh, and nobody's gone back into major maintenance yet. Um, and one of those of, of the ships that were not deployed, uh, one was in a pierside um, availability overhaul. That's the George Bush at Norfolk. Another carrier, the Harry S. Truman, was in a in, in a year long um, overhaul at Norfolk. And the John C. Stennis is in a major multi year um, refueling overhaul in uh, Newport News. Uh, actually, right now, the the uh, Truman came out um, earlier this week, and they're out of the shipyard. The The Bush is not in shipyard hands. That's a pier side availability. There's only one aircraft carrier in a shipyard right now, and that's the John C. Stennis. That's unheard of. Right. Um, there's, there's now, you know, there's going to be a flip side to that, and that is too many ships out at one time means you're going to have too many ships in at one time. And that's really what you're seeing now. You had too many ships in. Now you have too many ships out. It's incredibly difficult to maintain this and get an order to it. You can plan all you want, but reality rears its ugly head, including things like, well, we have the George, uh, the uh, Gerald R. Ford right now that's uh, that's deployed, that is now, her deployment is extended, and it's not at all clear how far that will go. So at the moment, it's turning into an eight-month deployment. Um, we'll see see how long that goes. On the other hand, that's been happening quite a bit. And that's the kind of thing that throws a lot of schedules off. But it is really interesting. It, it is notable and remarkable that you have so many carriers underway. This is this is an accident, really. It's, it's you don't you, you don't plan for this. Um, still, it's a it's it's definitely a thing. Of course, what's going to happen next year? One of the big things people will be looking for next year is the Chinese, the first Chinese full deck aircraft carrier, Fushan, um, should begin sea trials, and that's a ship full of untried technology the vast majority of which they've copied from the United States. Uh, they haven't put it to sea before. It's going to take them a while, logic tells you, to make that work, regardless of what people think and see. Um, but that, you know, that's that's going to happen. But that's just their first carrier. We have eight running right now, which is nuts, actually almost nine. So, um, of course, you know, you've only got nine air wings anyway. You can only put so many airplanes on a carrier. But um, the other, one of the other themes has been, speaking of all that new technology uh, rolled into one right. home, the USS Gerald R. Ford. This has been a tortured program for 20 years. The world's most expensive ship, the most expensive ship ever built by anybody, anywhere, for anything. Right. Um, packed with too much new technology, which was a political decision and not the Navy's decision. Everybody conveniently forgets that. Um, it's kind of kind of sad that Congress didn't haul Donald Rumsfeld in before to testify about that in all the hearings they held about who ordered all this stuff to go into the Ford at the same time. But that's okay. He's gone now, so he got away with it. Right. But the Ford took forever to to perfect, um, and you know, in particular the uh, the launch system, electromagnetic catapults, these new um, electromagnetic weapons elevators, um, new arresting gear, new, 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 new. Um, the, 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 the Ford finally left for her first full deployment in May. Even then it had relatively limited goals. And yet it's turned into from what was a running disaster, at least in terms of commentators, you couldn't talk about the Ford. It's all screwed up. Okay. Thank you. Right. Um, you know, people who fancy themselves very smart, really read into things have been saying that for years. It certainly had its full share of problems. There's no question about that. And they took a lot longer to, to work out than anybody hoped for. But that ship de deployed, and suddenly 
this is now, especially as this year has played out, um, it's a it's a symbol of the United States and the United States naval power, and it's being cited from the highest levels on down, from the White House to the National Security Council to to uh, to, to the leadership in the Pentagon, to uh, all, and and even around the world and in world media, the world's largest warship, USS Gerald R. Ford, and nobody's snickering when they say that. Right. It's amazing, and especially if you're not in this country, if you're in Europe. And you've been seeing the publicity that's been gen engendered by this deployment. It's really something. And the whole theme about this thing, this, you know, running open sore that's been this program. Right. Um, is I'm sorry, you know, you hate you hate to say somebody's doing a good job because you always know there's stuff, there's bad stuff that you didn't know about. But this has turned into a major success story in, in front of everybody's eyes. And there's no there's no reason not to say that at this point. Um, and it's and been really impressive. It took forever to get here, and a lot of right. money, a lot right. of people, a lot of time. No question. It was. Uh, it's amazing uh, to have seen the ship go through this process uh, and end up uh, being out uh, and actually delivering, and then paving the way for the next, uh, you know, right. series of ships in this class that are going to be coming forward. And nobody does a better job of taking existing presence and turning it into we surged two carriers for israel uh in the wake of the hamas crisis as opposed to the two ships were going to be there for the handover anyway so there's nothing particularly you know out of, out of the order uh out of order uh or or off schedule uh that was happening there um cervello i want to uh, bring you in uh you and chris uh, on a weekly basis are tracking all of this stuff big and and small i was going to say i think what's interesting is uh some of the expeditionary um uh, uh support ships uh the esbs uh i think are out there doing some really interesting and innovative things uh in in terms of projecting uh sea power as part of you know the marines kind of stepping up their game uh walk us through a little bit of some of the stories that jumped out at you uh you know from uh, a naval uh standpoint whether on the marine side or the blue uh, blue and gold side well, I would say the biggest theme in terms of the Marine Corps and the Navy was um, a little bit more cooperation uh, on Force Design 2030 uh, towards the end of um, CNO Gilday uh, and the prior Commandant's uh, tenure. Um, you, you know, they had spent most of their four years sort of pulling in opposite directions and towards the end. I think they were able to get a, a little bit closer um, and you'll, you know, it both had stated goals uh, and their predecessors had stated goals of beginning to do more together as a naval force. We started to see more of that in, uh, in, in 2030. Um, we started to see more uh, cooperation on aviation readiness and, and procurement um, in, in, in both services. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as you, uh, as you mentioned, you're, you're starting to see different platforms of, and, and different force structure, um, laydowns, um, being tried, uh, particularly in the, in the Pacific. So, um, you, you know, I, I would say the biggest Marine Corps story was the, the health problems with the current commandant, um, and, uh, you, you know, the problems that, um, the Tuberville holds, caused the Marine Corps uh, and, and being able to deal with uh, Eric Smith's uh, health problems. Um, it took a while to get a, an ACMAC confirmed and um, there were lots of lessons out of that. Um, but I mean, you know, the Marine Corps, I would say in, in typical Marine Corps fashion has kind of been steady as she goes for, for 23, uh, other than what we're seeing at the end. And, and that kind of cross cuts all of our platforms. And that was the, right. the problems with the V-22 
um, you, you know, they're, they're having to, to deal with that and having to think about what that means for their ability to, in the short term, um, you know, move logistics around the theater, but also, okay, how reliable will this uh, platform be um, medium term? Um, and, and do they have, uh, you, you know, too much invested in this? Do they need to start looking elsewhere? Um, so, you know, again, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, JJ can talk about that uh, as well as Cavus because it affects uh, re really all the services. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. A great segue on uh, what we're uh, all tracking on our beats uh, in uh, 24 and what folks should be uh, paying attention to. JJ, that's a great segue over to you. Uh, what What is it that we need to be focused on uh, in uh, 24 as far as you're concerned? Well, I have five notes, Vago, on stories for 24. The first one, yes, of course, uh, it affects all of us, all of our beats. When will there be a defense appropriations bill? And more importantly, how long will the continuing resolution portion of that bill be? That's going to affect the ability of all of the military services, not only to modernize, but even just to operate in the year to come. We have an authorization bill that writes the checks, but the appropriations bill puts the money in the accounts to cover the checks, and that hasn't happened yet. Another one. What are the effects of the further democratization of air power? We saw what Hamas was able to do with off-the-shelf technology. What's the next group? What's the next individual that finds a way to leverage that kind of technology? And against whom will it be employed and how? Third, very different kind of story. Will the F-35, the biggest program in the history of the Department of Defense, make its production numbers? We've spoken repeatedly on the program about how the cap of 156 per year is not adequate to meet even the existing order book, but increasingly that number is looking aspirational rather than a solid target to be met. You spoke earlier about the next story, the Air Force reorganization, where we see details in February. What are the effects of that reorganization? How sweeping is it? How long will it take the Air Force to recover from the reorganization and get back to its previous level of effectiveness? That's a story well beyond 2024 to play out. And the final thing I think we need to watch is what story will we break next? The Air Power podcast, thanks to the efforts of the whole team, made big news this year on at least three occasions where we had significant stories before anybody else. The NGAD program having three demonstrators and two contenders in the end, the Air Force developing the T-7 fighter, and the ongoing development of a high-end reconnaissance aircraft that had previously been thought canceled. What will we break next? Watch this space. And I just uh, said space. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Thank well you. done. I, I just have to say that was a, a shameless plug, but I appreciate you making it, JJ, <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Laura, uh, walk us through uh, the stuff, right? I mean, you've got a reputation for really looking out forward, uh, always in the stories uh, that you're doing and bringing deeper insight to them. What are some of the things that you're going to be tracking and, and uh, the audience ought to be tracking and you're going to be paying attention to in 24? Just to 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 further you know take a look at the space force and how it's actually growing into a real service branch and one of the parts of that is actually activating service components to combatant commands and just to give some perspective you know in last year 
uh, Space Force was in uh, two different commands in uh, Indo-Pacific Command and another one. And this year, they went to European Command and Africa Command. So I'm looking for further integration uh, into Southern Command and Northern Command to, to fill out all of those and then possibly into some functional commands. And so that, you know, you see them actually really becoming integrated into the joint force. I also think that there's going to be a much deeper focus in the Indo-Pacific region. There's South Korea, there's Japan, there's India, and all of them are really focused on uh, military and space operations. South Korea wants to become a major player in the space economy. If you want to be a major player in the space economy, you better be able to figure out how to protect it. Japan already has some sort of space forcey, you know, type units. But what's interesting there is that the Space Force is most likely going to stand up some sort of dedicated uh, installation there so that they can better integrate with Japan and Japan can better integrate with them. And then we've got the whole sort of trifecta of Japan, South Korea, and the United States that came out of uh, Camp David uh, talks earlier this year. I think it was in September that everybody got together. The other thing to look out for is that India is now ramping up an idea to uh, also create their own space forces. That's sort of to connect with us, but it's also an answer to China because they also see China as a big threat to their um, to their you know economic concerns in in space. But what I think is probably going to be another major story that I'm not sure everyone's going to connect the dots on to the military, but that I know that the military is definitely looking at is the economy, right? We new money as a new private investment or venture capital investment into the space economy, into new space businesses, which therefore means space technology right now is down by a third year over year. The economists I talk to say that they don't think that this is going to correct itself into a positive trend anytime soon. So why does that concern the military? Well, the military has this thing where exploit what we have, buy what we can and build only what we must. Well, you can exploit what you have for a while, for sure. Buy what you can. That means they want to buy the things off the shelf or that the commercial industry is going to make and develop and then build only what they must. But if the commercial industry, the new technologies that need that new money, if that new money is not coming in, there's going to be a shift to building what they must because nobody else is building it. So that's going to be a space to watch. And I know that Space Systems Command is definitely watching and quite honestly concerned. And this has been going on since the destruction of the Silicon Valley Bank when it went under, but it has not gotten better. And that's a problem. Thanks for uh, making that uh, tie-in, and it was really uh, amazing. I was at South by Southwest uh, last year when all of that was happening, and I was stunned how many actually sizable companies had all their money in one account. Oh, it's, it's size of 
sizable companies, but it's not just the companies. It's actually the pri- you know, private equity as also as um, the VC money as well. They all bank with Silicon Valley Bank. And the reason for that is, is that right. that's the only bank that understands the business case and how long it will take to have an actual exit. So correct. But I mean, the point I was making was not just that at one bank. Yes. Yeah. Right? You shouldn't have all your money in one bank. But some of these guys had not only one bank, oh, yeah. they had it in like one bank account, which, of course, the government tells you, whatever you do, don't do that, uh, because if that bank goes under, you're screwed. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's a real scramble. And that's why the government, you know, came in and actually right. bailed them out. Now, InQtel, which is known for helping out the dot-com industry, is, you know, from what I'm hearing, is talking a lot to Space Systems Command and to the Commercial Space Office to possibly right. come up with some other ways to bolster uh, these young uh, space tech entrepreneurs So, yeah, watch that space because Space Systems Command wants that new technology desperately. And in QTEL, of course, is uh, the CIA's uh, technology investment arm uh, that has been so uh, instrumental along with uh, DARPA, right, to advance some of these uh, smaller and and interesting high-tech companies, uh, indeed. Um, Chris, uh, give us your, and I'm talking to Cavus uh, at this point, Cervello, uh, you've got got the last word on this. Uh, uh, Cavus, what are some of the stories uh, that you're going to be focusing uh, on because uh, you also pride yourself on on uh, you both pride yourselves on on looking ahead and staying ahead of the news as opposed to merely just interpreting what's what's happened. What do you got your eye on next uh, year, Chris? And what are you going to be focused on? Well, for the beginning of the year, we're all going to look at all the organizations all across the board where that have been uh, held up because of this really this stunt being pulled by uh, uh, Tommy Tuberville and uh, the the. Uh, there's an awful lot of work that has just been in abeyance. It's been on hold. Um, a lot of decisions are on hold, and it's going to take a while for people to get in position and uh, figure out. Some are in better figure it out. Some are in better shape than others, uh, but some of them are really going to take a while. Um, in terms of uh, you know the sea, um, I think the, you know the Navy is on point everywhere, and, and you know at some point it'd be nice if there was an acknowledgement of this somewhere and that starts with the department of the navy not just talking about it but advocating for it and moving it up and down the line so the navy has been had this presence ever since the ukraine war started russia's war in ukraine we've kept an aircraft carrier in the mediterranean that's been a presence been a one-to-one presence that is more than what what had been planned um we that's we have upped our presence in the western pacific there are more ships that are deployed out there routinely. You don't hear about a lot of them because that's the way that the current Indo-PACOM commander likes to do that. But there are, for example, there are five littoral combat ships deployed out there right now, and they're doing all kinds of fun stuff uh, out watching the Chinese and making the Chinese watch them, leading them around. Um, the, the confrontations in the, in the Western Pacific, particularly with uh, the Philippines and China, are very dangerous. They become far more provocative. It is not at all clear who's in charge of what on the, on the Chinese side. The, this ranges from, you know, it's not, not so much the Navy, but their Coast Guard has been right in the middle of all this, uh, including ramming and, uh, and um, 
posing uh, incidents and the Chinese militia re responds to, to nobody within the normal naval chain of command. They're in the middle of all this. We are more intertwined with the Filipinos right now in terms of uh, of presence. We're, we're patrolling their regions with them. Uh, we have, we have, we have, we'll have a destroyer or an LCS out there with a Philippine ship. This is all ripe for, um, for an incident. Uh, obviously, what's going on in the Red Sea, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And it's going to be brought home to people who have nothing to do and no awareness of this stuff at all because it's going to run up consumer prices in multiple areas. This is not an oil operation like you know the Straits of Hormuz. Everybody thinks oil. This isn't just oil. This is everything. This is everything at all. This is cars. These are the world's largest container ships. Um, uh, this is this is a huge disruption, and even if 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 things you know start, um, uh, start being re redirected around the Cape of Good Hope around Africa, that take not only takes a lot longer, it also takes a lot longer to put that into effect. It's going to be going to have major disruptions. Uh, everybody's looking to the U.S. right now, and the combined maritime for task force structure that's out there. Um, beefed up to start doing uh, not just convoys, but also retaliatory strikes against the against the Houthis. The Navy's being stretched to to protect ships. There are multiple uh, independent deployers that are already being surged to go, and particularly East Coast destroyers. More right. single deployments are happening right now. The Navy doesn't announce most of them. Uh, sometimes they announce it when a ship gets in theater. But uh, this is a this is a plus up. It's going to strain a force that's already strained. I am I'm very tired of hearing uh, you know Navy leaders talk about we can't do anything. We're, we're our, our our hands are tied until industry resets itself and is able to do something. The government needs to be leading this demand. The Navy and the Pentagon and the government need to be leading demand, saying we need more ships. We're going to put we're going to put stuff out there. Industry will meet it. If the demand is there, if the money is there, industry will find a way to meet it. Calling on industry to get itself ready so we can order from you is bass backwards. Doesn't work that way. So we'll right. be looking for things that are not just rhetoric about we have we have to do things, but what are you doing to actually put some actually dangle some money in front of people and they'll help you meet that demand. Uh, they will indeed. It's all, as a British friend of mine a long time ago put it, it's all about moving the cheese. You want to move the mice, move the cheese. The mice will follow the cheese. Wow. Uh, yeah, or the, or the polar bear follows the steak uh, or 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 the, the seal. Anyway, um, uh, Chris, uh, bring, bring us home. And, and what are some of the things that actually you're going to be tracking, both big and large? Uh, that we're also going to be tracking, whether on uh, the daily or on any of the weekly uh, programs. What do you think is going to be standing out? And I should say, right, that uh, Tommy Tuberville, right, more and more of those people are getting through and getting confirmed. Uh, was in the Pentagon today, saw uh, a, a you know very important uh, uh, guy, and it was great to see three stars uh, on his shoulder. He was one of the people delayed. Uh, there were some four, four stars that have gotten through, but not all of them at this point. Anyway. Uh, so despite all this tomfoolery, at least we're getting to the other side of that. We'll see whether or not this stunt gets pulled again. But go ahead, Chris. We've had a ton of um, leadership uh, changes in the works for the last year. 
Uh, that log jam has mostly been broken as you guys talked about. So as that, um, as those folks move and, you know, there's an inevitable uh, learning process that occurs with that, um, you know, how quickly can these new folks, not just in the Navy and the Marine Corps, but across the joint force, how quickly can they get up to speed? How quickly can they actually get to the places that they need to get um, so that they can kind of make up for that lost time? I think that's going to be important. Um, the second is, is, you know, will the administration, will the services, will the Congress put their money where their mouth is, right? I mean, 23 has been an incredible year for learning, uh, as all of us have just talked about. Um, will the budget request actually reflect that? Will it, re will it reflect new and more weapons? Will it reflect new and more uh, force structure to deal with what we've learned uh, over the last year? I sometimes worry that it takes three or four years to actually get it into um, the, the budget. Um, and so that would be a miss. And then I would say lastly, um, I mean, th this is going to be probably the most contentious political year that any of us have experienced in our lifetime. And that's certainly saying something as we went through 2016 and 2020. What effect will that have on the ability of the services and DOD to break through and reach the audiences that they need to reach, whether it's in the building, whether it's uh, up on Capitol Hill or whether it's the American electorate in general? Um, I, I think that will, uh, you, you know, that will be important. And then finally, we start to see good people leave, um, regardless of uh, party, uh, in an election year. So, I mean, the the many talented folks um, in the civilian workforce that have been a part of holding things together throughout this tumultuous time, you know, are they going to start to leave? And what will that do um, to all of the efforts that we just talked about uh, as we move through 2024? So, you know, buckle up, Vago. It's going to be an exciting year. It is uh, indeed, uh, and we're going to be talking and covering uh, all of this uh, over uh, the course uh, of uh, the next year, and I'm honored to be doing that with all of you uh, who are uh, terrific news people, great analysts, uh, and really appreciate the tremendous job uh, all of you are, are, are doing, and I know that the audience appreciates it as well. Uh, hope you all have uh, very merry holidays, very happy uh, new year uh, and wishing uh, you all a happy, healthy and prosperous 2024 uh, and look forward to continued uh, kicking butt and taking names. Thank you very much for all your hard work. Thank you, Vago. And ho, ho, ho. Vago. <laughs> Good to be with you, boss. God bless us, everyone. Yes, that's right. Big and small. Uh, everybody, thanks uh, again uh, and, and best uh, to the holidays. Thanks to the audience for taking uh, time with us. And a reminder that our last show of the year is tomorrow uh, for uh, the Business Roundtable that is going to be doing a year in review of the biggest business uh, stories uh, of the year. Uh, and a very special thanks to our audience for joining us as you do. Take care. Have a great day. And we'll see you again soon.